Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. And here, James Jordan is going to be discussing Exodus chapters 19 through 24. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing Exodus chapters 19 through 24. We want to consider Exodus 19 through 24 in a brief overview. And we'll start with the arrival of God's people at Sinai in chapter 19. And you might want to look at the chronological chart that is found with this section as well. It'll help us a little bit, maybe by way of review. We should note that in the first month, God said this would be the first of their months. On the 14th day was Passover. On the 15th day was the Exodus. And then after that came Pharaoh's pursuit and the crossing of the Red Sea and so forth, as we've looked at it. A second chronological marker is found in chapter 16, verse 1, where we're told that the 15th day of the second month, they encamped at the wilderness of Sin. And the manna began at that time, and manna continued for a week. And then sometime after that week, they moved to Rephidim, and we have these other incidents that are listed here. And then we're told that on the first day of the third month, on the third month, or literally on the third new moon, that's the first day, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. And so they arrived there on that date. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness at Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Now once they had arrived on the second day, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus say to the sons of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and guard my covenant, and you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you will speak to the sons of Israel. So here their task is to be a priest to the other nations of the world. And we saw that was symbolized at Elam by the twelve springs and the seventy trees. So Moses came and told the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So that happened on the second day. Then on the third day, Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Put their trust in Moses. And the words that Moses tells them from God. Uh, then it says, Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Well, there has to be something in between there. Moses apparently went down, told the people, and they agreed, and then he went back up and told the words of the people to the Lord. So the rabbis say Moses ascended again on a fourth day. That's when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord at the end of verse 19. And then on that fourth day, the Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. So this is day six of month three. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around 
saying, Beware that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he will surely be stoned or shot through. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Well, there are several things required here that have to do with holiness and God's holiness and the fact that sinful man is not to approach God without mediators. They were to wash their clothes and their bodies to get the dust off. The dust is the curse, and just as Moses took his sandals off on holy ground, so they are to get the dust off of their feet and off of their clothing and whole bodies before they draw near to God. Secondly, there were to be boundaries around the mountain, and anybody who touched it would be put to death. But anybody who touched it would also contaminate anybody who touched him. So in order to safeguard the holiness of God, the execution would have to be done at a distance so that his sin of defiling God's sanctuary and the curse that was on him would not spread to anyone else. And then they were told not to go near their wives for three days. And that seems to be because... According to Ezekiel 16, at Mount Sinai, the Lord married Israel and in order to highlight the fact that Israel would be God's bride from now on, and this was a marriage ceremony as well as other forms of covenant making, then the people were to avoid their natural spouses in preparation for that event. Well, the Lord himself arrived after that on the third day, and he brought with him all the panoply of his court, the cherubim, the chariot, the glory cloud. And we have it described here. It came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud on the mountain, a very loud trumpet sound. These are all the characteristics of the glory cloud. And the people trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. So within the cloud and thunder, there was the fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Uh, That's just like what is said concerning the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The smoke ascending like a furnace is a picture of judgment. And of course, the law of God, as given here, would be a sign of God's judgments and the necessity for a mediator. The whole mountain quaked violently because of his voice and the sounds. The sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Then God came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. So perhaps the people saw the chariot with the cherubim come down. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and gaze, and many of them perish. So they weren't allowed to look. You had the same thing in the tabernacle later on. You had these curtains to prevent people from looking in and seeing the Lord. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but don't let the priests and the people break forth to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So 
Everything here was designed to say that there is a tremendous distance between God and the people because of sin. This is the way it was in the Old Covenant until Jesus came and heaven was opened. These distances are overcome by the blood of mediation, but they continue to be in force as a teaching device throughout the entire Old Testament. Well, then we have God speaking the Ten Commandments. And I won't read those. We'll just have to skip that. It's very familiar. And what do you say in a quick survey like this on the Ten Commandments? What we do want to notice is that God spoke all these words out loud from the mountaintop with a voice like a voice of thunder. And apparently it was so overwhelming that people could barely even make out what was being said, but they were utterly terrified. And in verses 18 to 21, the people realized that they needed somebody to act as a mediator to bring this awesome message down to where they could hear it. And so all the people perceived the thunder and lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So it's an interesting verse. Sometimes God brings tribulation into our lives in order that we might be tested and learn to fear him and not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And of course Moses will be given these Ten Commandments on stone and he'll be able to teach them to the people. So Moses will be the mediator between God and the people at this point, signifying, of course, the work of Christ to come. And finally, as an image of mediation between God and the people, we have the altar, verses 22 to 26. And that's set up right away. Because of the sinfulness of the people and the demands of God's law, we need to have a mediator between God and man, and we need to have an altar of atonement. And so that's brought up right away. The Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. He's actually on the mountaintop, but you see, wherever God is, that's heaven. The Bible has a very flexible use of the word heaven. You shall not make other gods besides me, gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. You shall make an altar of earth for me. That's because the altar represents the earth. And you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So there will be various places where the altar will be put, although they weren't supposed to have many altars at one time. There was supposed to be one central altar, but it would move from place to place, from Gilgal to Shechem to Shiloh and the like. Now these laws here are given in part to anticipate the golden calf incident because Moses is just about to go up on the mountain after a couple of chapters, and while he's up there, they'll break all these laws. In violation of verse 23, making gods of silver and gods of gold, they will make themselves a golden calf. In violation of verse 24, where they're supposed to offer sacrifices where God puts his name, they're going to offer burnt sacrifices and peace offerings in a place that he did not appoint, and they didn't remember his name. Then we can go on and find they also violated verse 26. You shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed. Exposure of nakedness often has to do with sexual sins. And it says in chapter 32 that they 
sat down to eat and rose up to play. The word play often refers to sexual matters as well, as in Genesis 26, verse 8. Idolatry is often associated with harlotry, as in Exodus 34, 13 to 17. So all of these things are about to be violated by the Jews about 40 days from now. But the laws are given here. It says in verse 25, If you make an altar of stone, you're not to build it of cut stones. If you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. Again, the stones have to be those that God himself has made, representing the earth, and man's works cannot make a contribution to this work of the altar. And finally, as we notice, they're not to go up by steps. It's unclear to me exactly why. Some have speculated that the wind would blow their garments and expose their nakedness, and that would be a shameful thing. God had covered that. We don't know for sure, but... It was another command that God gave concerning how he was to be approached. Well, we come now to the book of the covenant, which seems to be the case law section here, Exodus 21, 22, and 23, together perhaps with this preamble about the altar. It's unclear exactly the parameters of what's called the book of the covenant or ordinances of the Lord, but... In chapter 24, verse 7, it says, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Now, perhaps it begins with the Ten Commandments and goes through to the end of 23. Perhaps it's the ordinances as opposed to the words. Uh, chapter 24, verse 3 says, Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. So... We don't know exactly, but it's clear that this passage is the heart of the Book of the Covenant. Now, the Book of the Covenant begins with laws about the Sabbath and ends with laws about the Sabbath. It begins with laws about how to release slaves, and it ends with laws on how to rest and celebrate your freedom in God. Remember that the thrust of the Book of Exodus is from slavery to Sabbath. We begin with slavery in Egypt. We end with the throne of God erected and God entering his house and entering enthroned in his own Sabbath rest and leading his own people to rest in chapter 40. And that again explains the way in which the laws are set up here in the book of the covenant. They do follow sections of the Ten Commandments. And we'll see this as we go. Now there's no way we can take the time to expound each of these laws in detail. My book, The Law of the Covenant, gave some detail on each one of these laws. The book is out of print, and I hope to get it revised, but a good deal needs to be done in the way of revising it, and so it'll be a while. But I can recommend to you that you just read these verses to yourselves and think about them. And as we go, I'll make some comments on interpretation, and hopefully this will serve as an overview of the book of the covenant. Well, we have, first off, five laws concerning slavery, and these are Sabbath laws because they have to do with the release in the seventh year. That's in 21, 2 to 11. And we have five laws concerning the freeing of male slaves and five concerning the freeing of female slaves. And we've already looked at this a little bit because it was involved in Moses' arguments with Pharaoh. But you'll notice that it has to do with the release of slaves. Verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he will go out as a free man without payment. 
If he comes alone, he goes out alone. If he's a husband of his wife, his wife goes out with him. The master gives him the wife, and she stays with the master, and then the man would go free and earn the money to purchase his wife from the master, and then she would be free as well. Well, that's to safeguard everybody's financial investment. Then the slave also has the right to remain with his master. It says if he chooses to stay with the master because he loves him, then his ear is pierced and blood is put on the doorpost by piercing the ear and he is made a permanent slave. Now this, again, we've got blood on the doorpost here and again the idea is salvation and adoption. This is called in Jeremiah the circumcision of the ear and it is a sign of adoption. A slave who decides to do this is no longer a bond slave, but he is what is called a house-born slave. That is, not a slave that's born in the house, but a slave who is born again at the door of the house. And this is an adoption ritual, and such a person as this is like a second-class son, and he does stand to inherit. Before Ishmael was born, Abraham's heir was one of these house-born slaves, an adopted son. And he comments on that in Genesis 15, verse 3, 2 and 3, Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? That was one of uh, men in Abraham's retinue. And Abram says, Since thou hast given me no offspring, one born in my house is mine heir. That is, a home-born slave, an adopted son. So that's what's involved here. There's no idea of denigration. On the contrary, this man is also going from slavery to freedom, only he is becoming an adopted son of his master. Then we have laws regarding the sale of daughters as slaves. They don't go free if they're being sold in marriage. Now, the idea here, again, is not just selling off your daughter to get married. The daughter would have something to say about it. But normally there was a dowry, what we would use the word dowry, that came with a girl and the money that the husband would pay to the girl and she would keep on this occasion goes to her father. And so she comes without insurance, without a dowry. And that makes her uh, kind of a second-class wife who does not have her own financial freedom. A full wife in the Bible has her own money that she brings with her, and she has money that her husband gives her. The bride price is given to the wife, and that makes her financially independent. That's where the woman in Proverbs 30 gets her money to do all the things she wants to do. And because she has that financial independence from her husband, that puts the marriage on a much more solid footing and it prevents abuse. But this woman does not have the money because it's gone to her father, and she doesn't have any independent means, and so the law graciously provides for her and says that she has to be taken care of, and if the husband fails to take care of her, then she can go back to her father. That does play into the Exodus, by the way, because the Pharaoh had failed to take care of the Hebrew women, and so however he acquired them as slaves, they were free to go because they had not been provided for. Well, again, the thing to note here is that all of these laws have to do with getting free of bondage. And they don't have to do with how you get slaves. The Bible's not very concerned with putting people into slavery. It is done as a punishment for sin, a way of making restitution. You can 
kind of be sold off to work for a few years to make up restitution. Other than that, the Bible is only concerned with how to free those who are in bondage. Well, we come now to laws concerning violence, the sixth commandment, and that carries out to the end of the chapter. We have what happens if a man strikes another man and puts him to death, then he's to be put to death. We have willful equivalence of assault to death, that is, striking parents or kidnapping, cursing parents. These things are considered almost equivalent to murder. And they also brought the death penalty with them under the Old Covenant. It says, interestingly enough, that he who kidnaps a man, verse 16, shall surely be put to death. That would actually eliminate 99% of slavery in the world. Some of these laws have to be interpreted in terms of the specifics of the Hebrew. He who curses his father or mother does not imply that if a child raises his voice against his parents, he's to be put to death. The word curse here has to do with financial provision, and it basically means that if a grown son allows his aging parents to become utterly destitute and get near to death, then he himself will die. And so it's virtual murder that's implied here in verse 17. Well, then we have assaults that result in wounds. We've started with the most awful crime, that is murder, and we're going to descend through lesser and lesser forms of assault until we finally find what happens if an animal falls into a pit and suffers a violent death. But here we have quarrels. If two men quarrel, then the law says that they're both responsible, or the man who does the striking and beating has to pay for a loss of time and medical damages, which makes a great deal of sense. And then we have a special law about slaves here in verses 20 and 21. The slave is to go free if he's injured. Again, the law has to do with setting slaves free. Then we have a rather well-known law about the abortion law. If two men struggle and strike a woman so that she has a miscarriage, then the penalty is eye for eye and tooth for tooth. If the baby comes out whole and there's no problem, then there is a fine. But if there is an injury to the baby or to the mother, then it's eye for eye and tooth for tooth and life for life. Now, it's unclear in the Hebrew whether this is an accident or deliberate. The actual Hebrew idiom implies that one man is striking at the unborn child of his opponent, that the wife is standing by and in order to hit at his opponent, he kicks the stomach of his opponent's wife in order to strike at the unborn child. And so it's deliberate attempted murder that's involved here. That's the most probable interpretation. It's possible, of course, that the scene is of two men fighting in the streets and just running around and one of them accidentally hits a pregnant woman and this is the result. In any event, the law clearly states here that the fetus, the unborn child, is a human being and what is done to him is as if it had been done to anyone else. Well, then again we have laws saying that slaves are to go free. I'm sorry, I misspoke myself up in verses 20 and 21. Those say that it's all right to strike your male and female slave, but not to put them to death. Here in verses 26 and 27 say that a slave is to go free if he's injured. Then we come to the ox. There's a series of laws here about what oxen do. And it's important to remember that the ox symbolizes the nation Israel, or any nation, 
and also the magistrates of Israel. Our tendency is to say, well, in the book of Leviticus where you have the ceremonial laws, that's where there is symbolism. And when you come over here to these practical laws, then they're just talking about animals and there's no symbolism. But as a matter of fact, all the law refers to Christ. It has to. And hermeneutically, we always have to take the law Christologically first and then practically second. And it's a problem in the theonomic movement that there has been a continual tendency actually stemming from the Middle Ages with Moses Maimonides and coming right down through British Israelite sources and then into the theonomic literature, a tendency to go to the Old Testament law for a bunch of practical rules without first and foremost going to it to see how it applies to Christ and then to the church. When you do that, you make mistakes, mistakes of interpretation, mistakes of application. And it's important to realize that the law always assumes that animals symbolize the life of men and that laws pertaining to animals always have relevance to human society. Here the ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox is stoned, its flesh is not eaten. The owner of the ox goes unpunished, but if the ox was in the habit of goring, then the ox is stoned and the owner is also put to death unless a ransom is given. Well, all of this can be applied to Jesus Christ. We can't take the time to do it, but Israel gored Christ to death on the cross. And the result was that the Israelites were stoned. If we read the book of Revelation, we find that they asked the rocks to fall upon them. And their flesh was not eaten. The dead carcass of Jerusalem and of Judah was simply wiped out. No one took it over. The Jews were just scattered out into the world. And even the psalmist says on the cross that Jesus was surrounded by the wild bulls of Bashan. So there again, you see, you can find that connection and trace it through the Bible. And it goes on and talks about how if the ox gores a slave, then you give the master 30 shekels of silver. And that, of course, is applied to Jesus Christ very clearly. Then we have what happens if a man opens a pit and a donkey or an ox falls into it and a restitution is made or if one ox gores another ox then what you do in that case we cannot take the time but I invite you to reflect on what this might imply if you remember that the ox signifies rulers and magistrates or nations does this have implications for international relations if one ox gores another or church relations if one pastor steals sheep from another church or in some way damages the reputation of another church, then does this law give any insight on that kind of thing? Well, possibly it does if we reflect on it and meditate on it. The third section of laws has to do with the Eighth Commandment. For some reason, we go from the Sixth Commandment to the Eighth Commandment and then back to the Seventh. There must be some reason for this. Maybe it's just to show that you don't always have to do everything the same way. And maybe it's to show the relationship between violence and property. We sort of descend to the point where one ox hurts another ox, and it's pretty close to property consideration there. So perhaps that's why we just move on to property there instead of moving into the area of faithfulness. At any rate, that's what we have. Now... The first four laws deal with theft, outright theft. If a man steals an ox or a sheep, slaughters it and sells it, he pays five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. <laughs> There's an awful lot of question about this. Why isn't it just double restitution? 
and there's a good deal of speculation. I think, again, the answer is to be found by looking at the symbolic meaning of these animals, what they meant in the sacrificial system. Sheep represents poor people, and the oxen represents the powerful. And it seems to me that the basic idea is that if a man rebels, not only steals, but also destroys the property of an authority figure, an ox, then he owes fivefold restitution. So let's say that a group of rioters storm City Hall and burn it down. Well, they owe fivefold restitution because they have raised up a hand against authorities that God has set up on the earth and not only stolen from them, but also destroyed the property. Then it says, for sheep, for the sheep, I understand that to mean what happens if a wealthy person oppresses the poor and not only breaks in and steals, which a wealthy person wouldn't need to do, but if he steals and oppresses the poor, then he owes fourfold restitution. And you see this in the Bible. When David had Uriah killed, and Nathan came to him with the parable about the rich man who stole the one little sheep and killed it. And then fourfold restitution is what's involved. And it's a parable of a rich man oppressing a poor man. And similarly, Zacchaeus says he's a tax collector and that he has been bilking the poor and oppressing the poor. And he says, where I have oppressed the poor, I will make a fourfold restitution. So it does seem that the symbolic dimension is the, the way to go in interpreting this, but we can always look for greater light. In verse 2 it says, if a thief is caught while breaking in and struck so that he dies, it's okay. In other words, you can kill in self-defense. And this is an important law. This law establishes the right of self-defense up to and including killing the person that's attacking you. And then there are other rules here concerning theft and what's to be done with the thief. Then we have laws concerning pollution, verses 5 and 6. If you allow your animal to go into somebody else's yard and pollute it, or if you start a fire and you pollute the other person's property, then you have to make it good. Then there are laws about safekeeping. If a man gives his neighbor money or goods to keep for him and it's stolen, and the thief is caught, and the thief pays double. If the thief isn't caught, then there are ways to try to handle all this. Some of Jesus' parables build upon these laws, and they're worth becoming familiar with for that reason alone. And then we have laws about borrowing and rent in verses 14 15. If a man borrows something and it's injured or dies or is destroyed, then he has to make it good. Then we come to laws concerning marriage and faithfulness, which center around the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Generally has to do with faithfulness, and that seems to be an umbrella under which we can put verses 16 to 31. Top of your Bible page will probably say various laws, but it is possible to form a conceptual grid around the idea of adultery and faithfulness. First of all, we have seduction. If a man seduces a virgin who's not engaged, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife, unless the father refuses, and then he has to give the money equal to the dowry for virgins. This is that money that goes to the wife as her own independent money. Because she's been defiled, she gets the money anyway, which sets her up in independent means. If the creep marries her, then she has independent means, and if he doesn't marry her, then she's got that money, and it makes her independent in case she never does get married. And if she ever does get married, then she comes with a lot of extra money to the marriage and thus makes a good match. So it balances things out. And then you have some laws about spiritual adultery, witchcraft, bestiality, sacrificing to other gods, 
All of these are connected with spiritual adultery many times in the Bible. Then you have laws that I call mistreatment of God's bride. Don't oppress the stranger, don't oppress the widow and the orphan because they'll cry to me. And the idea is that God is the father of the fatherless and he is the husband of the widow and he will avenge if these people are oppressed. So again, we're in the area of faithfulness in marriage. And then finally, verses 28 to 31, I think comes under the heading of respect for God as the divine husband. And all these laws have to do with respect for God. Don't curse God. Don't curse a ruler who represents God. Be sure to pay your tithe. Be sure to dedicate your firstborn son, and so forth. Be holy. Then we come to laws concerning witness-bearing. There are ten laws here. We have laws telling them not to be false witnesses. Don't follow after a multitude in order to pervert justice. Don't be partial either to the poor or to the rich. Then we have laws concerning our personal adversaries. We must show equity to them even if we don't like them personally. Help them out if he's in distress. Then we have laws about courtroom justice. Those first five laws have to do with personal relations and how we act in society. Then we move to the courtroom. And it says, don't pervert the justice to your opponent. Keep far from a false charge. Don't take a bribe. That's really talking to the judge. Don't oppress the stranger. And again, that almost is by itself. Don't ever oppress the stranger because you're supposed to witness to him and draw him into the kingdom and not drive him away. Well, then we close with laws concerning time and rest. We have laws about Sabbath days and Sabbath years. They were supposed to keep a Sabbath year and not plan anything during that year. Perhaps an application today would be crop rotation, but we would not be bound by this nor by any other Old Testament Sabbath law. Then we have the Sabbath day laws in verse 12, and they're told that the Sabbath is a time of worship. Verse 13, don't mention the name of other gods. And that's put here because the Sabbath was a day of worship in ancient Israel. Some people have the impression that the Sabbath was nothing but a day of rest. But rest is always holy rest. And Leviticus 23, verse 3 says there was to be a holy convocation every Sabbath day. Then we have the annual festivals, a series of laws here concerning them, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Harvest or Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. All the males were supposed to appear each year at these. And then we have... The curious law here at the end of verse 19, you're not to boil a kid in the milk of its mother, which has occasioned a good deal of speculation down through the centuries as to what it might mean. Again, I think the answer is to look at the symbolism. A kid is a young child, and it means that mothers are not to kill their own children and eat them. And actually, that's done twice in the Old Testament. At the siege of Samaria and at the siege of Jerusalem, we have cases recorded where mothers boiled their own children and ate them. And there's a good deal that's implied here in the way the law is phrased and everything else, but we really can't take the time for it. Then we have, as an epilogue, exhortations to obey God and conquer Canaan. They're told that the angel will go before them and guard them, and that they're to be on guard before him. The angel will go before and lead them into battle and that God will send fear into their hearts and hornets into their cities to drive them away. These hornets would drive the people out so that the cities would be left intact and they would be able to inherit them. God tells them that he won't drive the Canaanites out immediately, but will do it year by year 
so that the people can expand into the land and the land won't lie without inhabitants. And they're told to make no covenants with their gods but be faithful only to the Lord. Well, we come now in conclusion to the ratification of the covenant. That's in chapter 24. And we should read over and look at the events that are recorded here. First of all, there's the covenant meal, and then there's Moses' ascent up to the top of the mountain. Starting in verse 1, Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Again, in the Old Covenant, they can never get in very close. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. So the people have to stay down at the bottom, and then these elders are allowed halfway up the mountain. Only Moses can go all the way up. Of course, in the New Covenant, we all get to draw near. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, that's the Ten Commandments, and all the judgments. That's these case laws we just finished surveying. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. So you can look at the little diagram in your notebook there and see it. You have the mountain and you have the altar and then you have the twelve pillars representing the people. He sent young men of the sons of Israel. These would be the firstborn or equivalent. And they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. First of all, there's the burnt offering for sin. And then there's the peace offering signifying fellowship with God. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He did that in order to set it apart. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Now, not literally, he sprinkled it on those pillars that were there representing the people. There were two million plus people there. He couldn't have sprinkled them all, but he could sprinkle their symbolic representatives, these twelve pillars. And Moses said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, or cut with you, cut being the image of sacrifice, in accordance with all these words. And then after that, after the covenant had been made and ratified by blood, then they went and had a meal with God. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. So God was separated from them. He was up in heaven, and then there was the blue firmament boundary between God and the elders. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they beheld God, and ate and drank. Now, what's happened here is that altar has been set up in between the people and God, and it's only through the altar and through the blood on the altar that they can approach God, and that's set out by the geography here. Otherwise, they would be unable to approach God at all. It's the blood of the sacrifice that makes it possible for them to draw near to God. Well, finally, and just very briefly, at this point, the Lord said to Moses, Come up with me on the mountain and remain there, and I'll give you the stone tablets with the law and commandment that I've written for their instruction. So Moses took Joshua and went up to the mountain and told people to remain behind and that Aaron and Hur were in charge. And we read that Moses went up 
inside the cloud that looked like a consuming fire. He went into the heavenly environment, and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. We'll see what happened while he was there in the next lecture. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.